that band-aid off. Let's open our Bibles. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be finishing Mark chapter 1 today, verse 29. So we'll be finishing the first chapter of Mark's gospel. As a bit of a reminder, uh, we're, we're looking at a specific time in Jesus' ministry. This is towards the beginning. And if you follow the text, if you just read through Mark chapter, Mark chapter 1, this is, is truly a day in the life of Jesus. Um, it goes through a, a specific Saturday Sabbath. We learned through the text last week that Jesus had attended the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Jesus cleansed a demon-possessed man right there in the synagogue and showing his authority to do so. He told the demon to be quiet and to come out, and it had to obey. So Pastor Jim's sermon last week focused on Jesus' authority as he calls the disciples and as he casts out unclean spirits. So this was no doubt a little bit of of a um, spectacle, a little bit of a disturbance in the synagogue. Obviously, when a demon-possessed person comes in and calls out this teacher as the son of God and he tells him keep your mouth closed and get out of here and he obeys Uh, today we're going to pick right up after that event so directly after that event a side note in Mark he's very fond of the word immediately as you read through uh, you can almost keep a, a, a counter of how many times Mark uses the the words immediately I think this is actually really kind of cool because we all have that friend that uses a word repetitively you know, when I was growing up, there was, a, there was a guy, we called him actually. Because he started every sentence with actually. If, if he didn't start the sentence with actually, he ended it or he worked it in there somehow. And so um, Mark is the immediately guy. It's kind of like a pattern of speech that he uses. And the beauty of that is that we actually get to see God's inspiration of Scripture works through the people who are writing it. So you actually get to see the author's, uh, the author's own habits in writing but you get to see God's working through that as well on a deeper level. So, you're going to see immediately a lot in here. Uh, before we dig in in verse 29, let's, let's go ahead and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Now, Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would break through our ignorance and mistrust. Help us to hear your word this morning with fresh eyes and open hearts. I pray that we would see Jesus glorified and that you would use this time to do so in spite of our lack of understanding, in spite of my lack of words, that your story, the story of Jesus and his gospel would be made known. Let us hear you and love you today. Amen. Okay, let's read. Verse 29. And immediately, there it is, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Okay, so what's happening here? Jesus sees Simon Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever, which could be deadly in those days. We don't know exactly what was causing, causing it. But Jesus simply takes her hand, He goes and just takes her hand, and she's fully restored. There was a public audience for many of the things that Jesus did miraculously, even right before this. He was in the midst of a congregation. But this is in private. You know, Mark shows us just how loving, uh, how caring this character Jesus is. 
how absolutely um, sweet he is with those around him. He finds a sick woman and he just goes by her bedside and just takes her hand. No magic words of incantation, no, no prayer, no commands for the illness to come out of her. Simply his touch. And that's enough. Now notice what happens next. Peter's mother-in-law gets up and she starts serving them. Why would this strange little detail be included? Um, and as you read through the Gospels, and if you've done so multiple times, you, you notice this. There are little details in the Gospel stories that, that the writers include that are kind of odd details to include. If you were to craft a story to tell something and you're thinking from the, the high level and, and, and just wanting to tell this whole narrative story, you wouldn't include the little details that the Gospel writers often do include. Why is that? I'd like to offer two reasons that I think this, this detail and many like it are, are included. Um, first of all, I think this gives us a credible witness that this really happened. That this is actually a historical account. And so details are included. As you know, in life, not everything flows with the main narrative of the story. Made-up stories don't include details like this. They don't include details that aren't relevant to the point. But historical narratives do. These little gems that we find, these odd little details that we find in Scripture are actually proof to us. They are there to help confirm that this is a, a story that is not made up. This is a story of history. These things really happened. And then each of those, purpose, each of those little details you'll find have their own purpose to teach us something. The other thing here is that, that Peter's mother-in-law gives us exactly the response that we are to have when we encounter the healing Lord. Her response and our response, our proper response, is to serve him. Immediately, we start serving him. Let me further dive into that a little bit. First of all, Jesus went to her. If you can picture this with me, he enters and goes to her bedside. He approaches her and takes her hand. I mention this because this is representative of most of our stories. Be honest with ourselves for just a second. You didn't necessarily go searching for the one true God or having reasoned and using logic your, your way to find Jesus, to seek out salvation. No, usually we find in our stories, it's actually Jesus who seeks us out, who comes to us in our mess, in our sickened state. I think that's how it worked in my life. I think that's how it worked in many of your lives. Oftentimes, when you talk with people who are experiencing conversion uh, or, or belief for the first time, it's not a long thought out process of seeking out God, but more of a feeling that something is being done to them. The experience usually sounds like this. I don't know what's happening, but I'm starting to believe. This was my experience clearly, and, and I'm willing to bet that it's many of yours. 
So what happens when we experience being brought to health back to life by Jesus? The proper response given by Peter's mother-in-law is that we get up and start doing the household chores. When someone's born again, they start with new priorities. They start giving all of a sudden of their time. They start giving of their money. They start approaching their workplace and their home with a new set of eyes. They start serving others as if they were serving God. That's what she's doing here. Although in this case, she is serving Christ. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that it gives you new eyes for everything that you do. Everything that you do. With gospel eyes, doing the dishes at home, taking care of children, or doing your regular day-to-day job suddenly has the meaning of mission work. If you are at home changing diapers, or if you're in the workplace filling out a report, it can be done for the sake of the gospel and with that kind of intensity and purpose. All work is ministry work for the believer. All work becomes ministry work. Let's read on in verse 32. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now we talked about Jesus' authority last week, but we should discuss the miracles that we're going to see again and again as we read through Mark. Here he is healing the sick and casting out unclean spirits from those who have them. So what are miracles? For the purpose of our discussion here, I I want to define miracles as a breaking of the natural order. Something happening that the natural understanding cannot comprehend. The laws of nature being broken. The metaphysical interrupts the physical, or the spiritual breaks through into the natural world. Now, there's a few different things that can happen when we talk about miracles. And I I want to talk at least briefly about the different ways that people have viewed miracles throughout modern history. Many times, the gospel stories of Jesus have been sterilized. People attempt to explain away the miracles of the Bible. That's one of the responses that we see, especially in our modern world, is we tend to explain away the miracles we encounter in the Bible. Why do people do this? I think it's because we are uncomfortable in our 21st century minds with the idea of miracles. So much of what we see and feel is explainable that we are attempted to explain away the accounts of miracles as well. Progressive Christianity is known for this. Progressive Christianity has made this attempt repeatedly throughout time. But what do you have when you take away the miraculous from the stories in the Bible? What are you left with when you pull away any of the supernatural elements? You absolutely destroy the Christian message. The Christian message is absolutely destroyed if you take away any idea of the supernatural. Because everywhere 
The Christian message is, is itself, everywhere you look, the Christian message itself is, is, is one of the, the spiritually transcending, the spiritual transcending into the physical. Again and again, we see that throughout Scripture. Everywhere you look in Scripture, we find a God who is spirit, who is shaping, transcending, and ultimately inhabiting his own creation. So if we are uncomfortable with the miracles of the Bible, then we are uncomfortable with a miraculous God. But a God who created all, a God who creates everything, has every right to break through his own created order whenever he sees fit. He can do so at any point he wants to. So the miraculous for the Christian is an integral part of our belief system. It's a necessary piece of what we believe. Now, we, we tend to, to create dichotomies in, in human thinking. So this is one way that we can go, is, is the, the progressive tendency to explain away the miracles. But there's a pendulum swing, and on the other side, there's other ways that we respond to miracles that are also unhealthy. Um, the other side of the pendulum is where we sensationalize miracles we make miracles the, the normal, expected experience of the Christian walk. This is where charismatic and Pentecostal churches go. If Jesus did this and, and the apostles did this and we have the same spirit, then we can expect the same things to happen in our experience. There's a lot that comes along with this. A lot of bad teaching comes along with this. Possibly a whole different sermon for another day. But with the modern church, this is very interesting. We've actually seen quite this mixing of theologies and doctrines in many churches. And so this is no longer just an idea that just Pentecostal or charismatic churches have. There's an interweaving into many churches that you might go to where we expect the miraculous to break through. It's very common in many churches to have this overemphasizing of the miraculous. And to that, I would say there's some potentially very harmful aspects of that. Um, first, the experience of miracles to explain as we look through Scripture is not common throughout the, most of the Bible. You can see that the miraculous only attends certain parts of the story of the Bible. For instance, God sends the plagues on Egypt to do what? He sends the plagues to establish the message and the messenger. God sent Moses, the messenger, with a specific message to Pharaoh, which was what? Let my people go. The miracles of the plagues of Egypt then are not just a punishment on the Egyptians, although they are. They're not just a punishment on Pharaoh and his people, but they are a confirmation that the messenger carried the authority of the message. So the point is not the miracle. The point is the message carried by the messenger. It's an important distinction for us to understand. God then sends plague upon plague until his words, his message is heeded by Pharaoh. The Lord also parts the waters for the Israelites to cross and does numerous other miracles to fulfill his promise to the Israelites, but also to establish Moses as their leader and the one through whom God's word will be delivered. Miracles also follow some of the prophets 
like Elijah or Elisha, uh, to establish that God is with them and that his message is the one that is coming through them. The point of miracles is not the miracle itself. It never is. It is what God is accomplishing and establishing through the miracle. He's drawing our attention to something. When we get caught up in, in, in the idea or sensationalizing miracles themselves, we miss the point. They're to grab attention and point to something. After Christ, the apostles also are performing uh, miracles as God establishes what? Their message with power. And we can go on and on with different examples, but if we look at the miracles of the Bible just as God's right to break through his created order when he sees fit and often to establish his message and the messengers, then we can make sense of where and why we see miracles. Jesus is accompanied by miracles. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is ultimately the, the true message. He is what John calls the word itself. He also, unlike any other character in the Bible, is the source of the natural order and retains, even in his humanity, the right to break the created order as he and the Father see fit. So it makes perfect sense that the Lord of creation, as he walks the earth, can do as he pleases and wills with his creation. Are, are miracles then the, the normal experience for the church now? I would say no. Why? Because Jesus accomplished and fulfilled the law and the prophets, and his message has been given in his word and has been established, and we have full access to it. It's sitting in your lap, hopefully right now. If you want a miracle, read your Bible every day and hear God speak. He does. Does God do miracles today? Even though it may not be the normative experience, we still pray for them, don't we? We still pray for them. I'm praying for several right now, and I hope you are too. Some go as far as to say that God won't do miracles anymore. I'm just not comfortable saying that. Because throughout history, we see God is authoritative over his creation. And if we put an end to something, God can break through as he wills. So I pray for miracles. But don't minimize the miracle that someone in their flesh would go from having no belief in God to having a heart that loves God. I've seen that one happen, right? You've all seen that one happen. That one happened to me. I had a heart that hated God when I was younger. Absolutely hated God. What happened? Something happened to me. My heart was regenerated. I all of a sudden found myself loving this God who I had declared before that I hated. Regeneration then itself is a supernatural event. It's one of the greatest miracles that we actually get to see. And one of the ones that we glaze over the most. 
Okay, so what about demons? Pastor, I listened to Pastor Jim's sermon last week, and he promised that I would uh, explain demonology to you. Uh, I listened to that after I had written most of this, and so I had to go back and include this, but it's okay. Part of it is that we don't want to get caught up here. We don't want to sensationalize things. Uh, we don't want to go looking for things that we don't need to go looking for. Um, I think similar to the miracles, different factions have gone on the same pendulum swing. Right? We go one way or we overcorrect and we go the other. Progressive, uh, liberal Christianity, again, likes to explain away demon possession as misunderstood mental illness. I'm sure you've heard that before. The things that we would read in the Bible are explained by people who didn't have the, the medicines and psychotherapists that we have now. They simply didn't have an understanding that, that we have now. And so when we see what was called demon possession, it simply is someone who has a mental disturbance. To that, I would say, why then? If he is all about truth, does Jesus treat them as demons and call them out as individual demons? Jesus speaks to the demons and commands them personally to do things like leave, go into that herd of pigs. Jesus speaks as to the demons with authority, but he speaks to them as an enemy. The other side of the pendulum swing, though, is to call everything we run into demonic. I'm sure you've seen this before, too. I certainly have. Every issue gets treated like uh, a demonic hold over your life or some sort of curse over your life. Again, this is the charismatic Pentecostal influence. Um, now, the problem with that is that Jesus didn't do that either. He never did that. He didn't name everything negative as demonic. And the wisdom behind that is that we should not live our lives in fear of a defeated enemy. So why don't we see demon possession today? Two things I would point out. First, you probably wouldn't recognize it if you did see it. You might have. It's not going to look like a movie because a movie is designed to sensationalize. The second point is that you have a real enemy who is also very crafty. Now just logically think with me for a moment. If you saw repeated and verifiable demon possession, what would that do for your faith? It would increase your faith, wouldn't it? It would make you all the more want to seek out Jesus. It would make real the spiritual which our enemy is so careful not to do. He wants us to doubt. The devil would love for people to have no real or obvious way to believe in a spiritual world. So why would he be so obvious? He has a different tact. It would be against his own purpose. Having said that, it does not mean that it doesn't exist. Just that it would not be something I would expect to see on the regular. We don't want to create witch hunts or demon hunts. 
One of the most common questions asked when, when people are asking about this subject is, is uh, asked about demonic possession specifically, is can a believer be possessed by a demon? Uh, let's look at that just logically, just for a moment. What happens when you believe? You receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart. The answer to our question then simply becomes another question. Can the Holy Spirit cohabitate with a demon? No. No. The answer simply is no. Not because of your power as a believer, but because of the Spirit's power. What we should walk away when, when thinking about things like this is the realization that we have a real spiritual enemy, an enemy who is named by Jesus as Satan, an enemy whose forces would love nothing more than to destroy everything good. Not because they can win, but because they are defeated and not yet destroyed. And we should remember that as we encounter every kind of evil, every kind of evil, not just demon possession, but the sin and temptation in your heart, give no opportunity for the devil to destroy you. I said this again and again to people I've counseled who are struggling with a, a, a repeated sin and going back to it again and again. You have a real enemy. He wants to destroy you. Don't let him. Go to Christ. Ask for help. But if you are in Christ, you are not your own. You are his. You belong to someone else. And remember that. Therefore, the, the devil has no claim on you. He can't. You, if you are a believer, have been bought Enough about that, because I would argue that we actually have more important things in this text to go over. Let's look back at our text, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. There's an example for us here of Jesus' prayer life. But I think we should pay careful uh, and close attention to. It's easy to miss what's going on here. Uh, but but being, being sandwiched between miracles and exorcisms is this little gem. Uh, this is an example of Jesus' prayer life. Jesus prayed first and he prayed often. In, in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that Jesus often went to desolate places to pray. By himself. In other words, he went out into the wilderness to pray alone. Our text here said he went early in the morning to the wilderness 
and the disciples had to go searching for him. We can understand through that that he wasn't simply saying his morning prayers real quick. He was spending time, probably hours before they could find him, in prayer with the Father. Well, why is this significant? Well, Jesus was the Son of God, co-eternal in glory and connection. But he needed to pray. This is more than just setting an example. This is the perfect example for us. But this is not just Jesus saying, watch me, guys, I'm going to go pray and set an example for you. No, this is him being drawn into communion with the Father on a regular basis because he needed to. He needed to speak with the Father. This is an insight into how important prayer really is to a believer. While I don't expect each one of us to automatically start praying for hours each day, there is a principle here that we need to, that we must apply. Jesus prayed this much at the peak of his popularity. At the very pinnacle of his ministry, Jesus prayed this much then. We just read that swarms of people, the text said, the whole town was at the door, which is no doubt hyperbole, but nonetheless, there were too many to count, bringing their sick and their possessed and needing to see and hear Jesus. He's popular. If you want to experience a prayer life that is more like Jesus, what has to change is your whole mindset toward prayer. Prayer for the Christian, just like prayer for Jesus, becomes not just a thing that we do when we are in trouble or need help or when we remember. We realize that we need desperately to be in prayer the same way that we need to drink water or breathe air. We need to be constantly orienting our lives around him. And that's exactly what prayer does. When we sacrifice time and spend time in prayer, it reorients our life and puts Christ in the center of it. That connection with him becomes the most important thing for us. <clears throat> I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for not praying enough yesterday because I didn't either. But I am trying to get you to go home today and think about how you can make room for intentional prayer in your life. Some of us make time for exercise. We make time for streaming Netflix. Whatever else, whatever else you sacrifice time for. But what would happen if we simply started putting prayer on our schedule. Not just saying, I want to pray more. What if you actually started scheduling your prayer time? Eugene Peterson, who uh, wrote a lot on, on the Christian devotional life and ministry, told the story about how he finally realized that he needed to block off time on his calendar, on his schedule, for prayer. And then when someone asked for that block of time, he didn't move the prayer time. He simply said, I'm busy at that hour. I'm busy at that time. Because he needed to make sure that he actually did the prayer. And one of the things that this life does is it distracts us with trivialities and we forget the things that are the most important. That was a really big one for me, to, to realize that this, this guy, this giant of, of the faith, 
needed to schedule his prayer time. He could cancel on other things, but he wouldn't cancel on his time with God. The struggle with this is it goes right against the human ideas that you and I have of productivity and success. That's not a very productive thing to do because something more important will come up into your schedule and you'll want to push it off for that thing. There's always an emergency. There's always something that comes up. After all, God's always there. You can move it around. What's happening in the larger story, what is happening? Jesus just cast out uh, demons. He just spoke with authority. He just healed the sick and brought sight to the blind. He was gathering a huge following, and his disciples are excited. That's why they're searching for him in the morning. They're excited because all of a sudden there's what? There's a crowd. People are coming. People are being drawn in. And they're thinking, like you and I would think if we were there, this is success. The crowds are here. Now is our chance to build a ministry and then shore it up and then start planting other ministries around. When they finally found Jesus, there's a note of frustration, I think, in their voice. So Jesus Everyone is looking for you, and you're out here by yourself. Prayer doesn't feel productive. It goes against our human ideas of productivity. The disciples feel the tangible success of ministry. They see a crowd, and they want more. They can set up a ministry right there in that town and start building on it. What does Jesus do? He disappears to pray, and then when he comes back, they say, everyone's looking for you. and says, I know, let's move to the next town. Let's go to the next town because I want to preach there too. Undoubtedly, the, the disciples are confused at that. They are starting to see fruit from the ministry. People are being healed. Demons are cast out. People are hearing about this great miracle worker from Nazareth. This is first century fame. Jesus says, you're looking at the wrong metrics. You see, they didn't understand his full mission, did they? How could they? Jesus came to preach and to die. That doesn't compute for humans. We want our ministry, our business, relationships, whatever, to see success. We want to measure and feel the excitement of success. Jesus says, I have a different way. You're looking at the wrong Metrics. He says in Luke 17, this is one of my favorites, the kingdom of God comes without observation. You see, we like externals. But Jesus is concerned with the internal. He's concerned with heart work. We can't measure that. That's tough for us to count. And I'll say this, there's been a lot of people here lately We've been uh, packing our sanctuary into pretty close to the fire code, multiple re weeks in a row. Um, and that is, for all of us, I think, and especially for your leaders, exciting. We're tempted to be exciting because something we can see is growing. There could be some success. But we have to be careful on how we measure success. Crowds do not equal success. 
Now, in the past, I know that I have been at churches and I've been on staff at churches that saw numbers primarily as the success measurement. Jesus does not give numbers priority. He never does. Jesus heals someone and says, don't tell anyone. He casts out a demon and says, be quiet, stop yelling about who I am. He's not trying to draw a crowd. He's seeking out lost sheep. Jesus knows the human heart, and, and we don't, and we won't. Uh, he knows, for instance, that crowds tend to grow, but they also tend to move on to the next thing pretty quickly. For instance, the same crowd that, that shouts Hosanna to the son of David is later that week shouting crucify him. This is what happens again and again when we encounter Jesus. Jesus continually does not fit into the forms that we would like to fit him into. Going through the Gospel of Mark this year is going to be so good for this church body, and I'm, I'm very excited about it. But what you're going to see is a Jesus that defies expectations. You're going to see a Jesus that confuses you. Or at least he should. He simply doesn't do what we expect or want him to do. If you could predict and fully understand him, would he be God? I mean, that is what we try and do, is compartmentalize him. We try to predict. We try in our minds to figure out his motives and understand what's going on. But you know what? Every time I read through the gospel accounts, I am always finding myself speechless at the words of Jesus and his actions. He's like no other character in history. Jesus is like no other character ever in history. If Jesus doesn't challenge you, you are not paying attention. If he doesn't confuse you a little bit as you read through these things, you are not reading them fully. The disciples who are with him, physically with him, are constantly mystified and confused about his tactics. The Pharisees and the Jews of the day are just confounded by his wisdom. They don't understand his insight. There's one more person that we're going to read about who has an encounter with the real Jesus in verse 40 of our text. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him. And sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. That's further on Leviticus that we read this morning. For a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. Well, nobody listens to Jesus, right? They don't. So that... As a result of this, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So we read Leviticus 13 as we started this morning, um, and I left out some really gross details on purpose. Leprosy is, is a terrible disease. It's a disgusting disease. 
Lepers were considered unclean because the law stated them as unclean. It was a very contagious thing, right? And if you had leprosy, you had to be, as our text said this morning, an outcast. Literally living away from the town and staying away from people. And if people came close to you, you were supposed to cover your mouth like this and yell, unclean, unclean, don't come any closer. What does that do to the person? completely isolates, right? They can no longer be part of a society. They can no longer uh, be amongst family. They can no longer worship in the temple. They're cast out into the desolate places. Notice that this leper came to Jesus. It doesn't say where But it also doesn't say that he waited in between towns and found him in a desolate place and approached him. This leper comes to him and kneels in front of him. If Jesus doesn't heal him, he'll be stoned because he's broken at least three different laws right here that are very specifically to stop the spread of disease. But he has broken these laws and approached Jesus, imploring him, kneeling in front of him for help. If Jesus doesn't heal him, that's it. He's risking everything to come to Jesus. But also, he doesn't say that. He doesn't demand healing. He doesn't put Jesus on the spot and say, if you don't heal me, they're going to kill me. They're going to stone me. What does he say? If you will... You can make me clean. He says, if you will. Isn't this how we ought to approach Jesus with our requests? This is submission with reverence. All the while making our desperate requests made known to the God who cares. It's a beautiful thing of, of the life as a Christian is that we can approach him. And oftentimes when we approach, we're dirty, we're unclean. But the invitation is that we can approach him and beg for mercy. How does Jesus respond to this? First, this is, this is something I marveled at again this week. He touches him. Again, he doesn't say be clean first he goes and he touches him first the untouchable the unclean person jesus touches him and then says i will be clean this is your experience this is my experience we are sinful people born alienated and isolated from God and from each other. Unclean. God cannot have communion with the unclean because of the separation between evil and righteousness. But what does God do but offer himself? He reaches out to us and he himself becomes unclean for us. As 2 Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin for us all. 
Let's ponder that today as we come together and approach the table. Just what it means to approach with our need and to receive the very brokenness of God. Life for life, the perfect for the imperfect. His body pays our debt, but his blood washes us and makes us clean again. Lord, if you are willing, you can make us clean. And Jesus says at the table, I will be clean. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for your, for your encouragement that it brings to us, for your insight that you had when you walked this earth, for the love and the kindness we see expressed in a Jesus who touches the unclean. We thank you for a Jesus who constantly confounds and amazes us, who mystifies our minds and, and transcends every expectation that we could have for him. He simply cannot be fully understood. And for that, we worship. I pray that as we continue in this worship service, that we would encounter Jesus through communion, through worship, through prayer. Be with us, Lord, as we turn our hearts now to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.